You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner to English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 159 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled The Mystery of Death. This is 15 lectures translated by Simon Blacksland de Lange. This is Lecture 5, given in Nuremberg on the 13th of March, 1915, uh, entitled The Entry of the Christ Impulse into Historical Events, The Bridging of the Gulf Between the Living and the Dead. If spiritual science really is to be a kind of living draft for our souls, as it can indeed become, this spiritual science must also, on the other hand, prove to be a powerful and suitable means of widening the spiritual vision of the souls that have dedicated themselves to spiritual science in times when so much is being prepared and which are of such significance as ours. In this way, what is happening can be seen in a somewhat wider light than is possible today for those of our contemporaries whose vision is limited to materialism. In what has over the years been cultivated within our spiritual scientific movement, it has become possible to see that one of the aims has been to expand the nature of the soul's experience, so that one can be emancipated from merely thinking about the narrow limits of one's own self and one's surroundings, and is enabled to look somewhat more widely at the great impulses, the great manifestations of forces that pass through the whole evolution of earthly humanity. And when we have thus endeavored to broaden the scope of our feelings and sensibilities, we should, specifically in such times that, on the one hand, make so deeply painful an impression on the soul with their tempestuous waves, and on the other elevate it to a quite particular height, because so much of significance is concealed within them, be able to render the forces that we have acquired through spiritual science capable of seeing something that is not so outwardly visible in the events, something that the ordinary intellect is unable to perceive in them. We should, above all, be able to raise the objection does the terrible torch of war that has been set alight and is burning over our heads have any significance of a prophetic nature for our earthly evolution as a whole? Only those who view these events in so significant a light as to glimpse the possibility of this can rightly play their part in them. Friends within our ranks have often asked why in recent years it has been said in our circles that in the decades of the twentieth century there will be times toward which we must look with a particular attentiveness because the children and grandchildren of those who are now living will have to live through events that are great and important but also tragic and painful. Those who are entrusted today with the task of giving something to enable the souls of children and grandchildren to remain upright in the face of what will descend upon humanity in the twentieth century, must be aware that a strong inner power must be given to their children. Our descendants in the twentieth century will, to a far, far greater extent than we can imagine today in ordinary life, need strong inner forces as a support for their souls in order to carry with them the precious legacy of human culture that has been accumulated over the decades and centuries of human evolution. Moreover, the descendants of those now living on earth will be exposed to additional storms of life. I said that people may sometimes have been surprised that such things have been spoken of in our ranks. Perhaps, however, a sense of this may arise when we consider that we are living in the midst of the greatest and most terrible military conflict that has ever befallen mankind since recorded history on this earth began. Indeed, it would be quite wrong if we did not concern ourselves as fully as possible with the significance of the present moment and consider the question, 
What does the spiritual knowledge to which we aspire with our deepest longing have to do with what is to enter into the evolution of mankind? Even if we look only superficially, do we not see a storm that arose in the East some time ago threatening to engulf the modern culture and civilization of Europe? One should at least know that very powerful forces reside in the East, of which it can be seen that, in the way that they are now making themselves felt, they have the aim of breaking up and destroying European culture. To what extent this is the case can only be surmised at present. With what we may call European culture and civilization, we are living in the fifth post-Atlantean cultural period. It is the culture of the consciousness soul, in whose midst souls are among us who have something to give to mankind. If we look back upon Greco-Latin culture, this Greco-Latin culture is essentially, albeit in a quite different form, an echo, a repetition, on a higher level, of what existed on ancient Atlantis. Although it previously appeared there in a different form, in the fourth post-Atlantean cultural period, there was something of the nature of a repetition of it. The fifth post-Atlantean cultural period in which we are living is a new form. It is something entirely new that has been added to the existing evolutionary course of mankind. We should understand this not merely as an abstract truth, as a theory, but with the deepest and most intense feeling of responsibility. And we should also be clear that long periods of time in earthly evolution will have to elapse until everything that the divine world order has to give to earthly humanity through the fifth post-Atlantean cultural period has been brought to fulfillment from the hearts and souls of human beings. The most significant event of earthly evolution, the impulse of the mystery of Golgotha, occurred in the fourth cultural period. The mystery of Golgotha will not simply continue to exert an influence in the fifth cultural period in the way that it did in the fourth cultural period. The fifth cultural period has the task of gradually approaching the mystery of Golgotha with full spiritual understanding, with all the cognitive forces of the soul, and not merely with the forces of the intellect or of a piety based wholly on feeling. The task of gradually understanding the Christ who went through the mystery of Golgotha with all the forces of knowledge and understanding that the soul is able to bring out of itself. Thus the words of St. Paul, not I, but Christ in me, will become a reality in a new way. And indeed, everything that we develop through spiritual science is the preparation for understanding the essential nature of Christ with all the inner cognitive forces of the soul. This is a significant and important task of the fifth cultural period. Let us now enter somewhat more deeply into what is being asked of the fifth cultural period by bringing before our souls the way that the Christ impulse has influenced mankind since the mystery of Golgotha. If the influence of the Christ impulse had been confined to what human beings have understood of it over the centuries since the mystery of Golgotha was accomplished, the Christ impulse would have had little effect on them. However, it is not an impulse that has merely been imparted conceptually to the human intellect or to an understanding based on feelings, but it is a real impulse that has entered with living forces into the course of history. What is symbolized outwardly by the blood that flowed on Golgotha is the source of a living power that streams into the history of humanity. We shall try to understand through an historical event how this Christ event has exerted an influence without human beings having understood it, how it has been working as a livingly active force in human evolution. It is the task of the fifth post-Atlantean cultural period to bring the whole inner nature and essence of the Christ impulse to consciousness. However, 
It had already been working as a living force in the subconscious regions of the soul before it could awaken to full consciousness within humanity. One of the figures whom the Christ impulse sought out in order to exert an influence and an influence of significance through her is, for example, and I could have chosen other examples, that of the Maid of Orleans. When we trace the history of Europe, back to an event which was enacted in connection with the personality of the Maid of Orleans, we must say, even if we observe history only from an outward perspective, what she accomplished at that time, when by rising up amidst the French people she drove back the English forces, for she did indeed achieve this, was the initial step in giving the form to the map of Europe that it has gradually acquired. Any other view of the history of the last few centuries, insofar as it relates to the arising of European nations and states, is a fabrication, a view that does not take into account the fact that the Christ impulse, which was at the time a living force in determining the boundaries and identities of the European nations, was working actively with the Maid of Orleans. One might well say that while learned people have disputed about many things, beginning with arguments about the question whether the Last Supper was eaten in this or that form, whether this or that should be interpreted by this or that formula, and while learned people have shown that with their conscious minds they have not arrived at an understanding of the nature of the Christ impulse, this same impulse was working through the simple country girl, through the maid of Orleans. It has been molding the shape of European history, for the influence of the Christ impulse is not dependent upon the understanding that one has for it. It was through its Michaelic representative that the Christ impulse exerted an influence on the Maid of Orleans. However, the Maid of Orleans had to pass through something similar to an initiation for this to happen. We speak today of initiation, and for this purpose we give to human consciousness the rules that are put together in the book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Achieved? But such an initiation could not, of course, apply to the Maid of Orleans. In her case, one can only speak of an initiation that was in a certain sense a remnant of an older initiation, and which was enacted more in the subconscious regions of the human soul. These old initiations have continued to exist as elemental forces even until modern times, and in old legends and fairy tales much is said about things that happened to one or another person which evoked within him the inner soul capacity, enabling him to perceive certain aspects of the spiritual world. This is merely an indication that independently of human involvement and by virtue of the influence of divine spiritual forces that pervade the world, certain people who are suited for this through their karma are natural initiates, thanks to the place given to them by the karma of humanity, where this karma of humanity flows together with their own karma. A very beautiful echo of such a natural initiation, as one could call it, is given to us in a poem which speaks of how the, quote, son of the sun, S-O-N-S-U-N, Olaf Astason, abided during the thirteen nights and days that elapsed from the birth of Jesus until the appearance of Christ, until the 6th of January, in a kind of sleep condition. Olaf Astason's very name indicates that he possessed hereditary cognitive forces of a subconscious nature, for Olaf Astason actually means someone through whom flows the blood of his ancestors. Olaf Astason, the son, S-O-N, of the son, S-U-N, sleeps and dreams through the thirteen nights that are the darkest of the earthly year, or, at any rate, contain the greatest power of the year's earthly darkness, from the first day of Christmas until 6 January, the festival of Epiphany. 
Now the connection with these knights that features in such legends is not the result of some crazy superstition. The fact is that there are two times in the year that relate cosmically as two opposite poles to the life of the human soul in the body. The time of the year that lies in summer around the festival of St. John's is the season which is especially suitable for the human soul, together with all its passionate impulses to be drawn up into and to be united with the cosmos through the outward physical power of the sun, which then attains its greatest strength. Thus when, in ancient times, people forgot themselves and were drawn up in the course of this festival into the strong outward physical forces of the cosmos, the St. John's Festival had the task of imbuing the human soul with the divine spiritual forces with which the cosmos is pervaded. But when the power of the sun reaches its physically weakest point in the middle of winter, the spiritual forces that are active in the darkness attain their greatest strength. And one would be right to say that the festival of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth is celebrated at this time in accordance with cosmic laws. When the outer physical world is at its darkest point, the soul can have the most powerful experiences when it feels united with the forces that spiritually pervade the aura of the earth. Hence it is during those days that Olaf Astason sleeps and sleeps and experiences all that we call Kamaloka, then what we call the spirit world, and finally the world of spirit. And the Norwegian legend tells us how once he has awakened after the thirteen nights, Olaf Astason is able to relate what he has experienced, how he has met with souls in the worlds of soul and spirit. These are pictures that correspond to an imaginative knowledge, but they are indicative of living realities accessible to human souls when they feel themselves to be transported at that time of physical darkness. Parenthesis, which is, however, a time of spiritual enlightenment, close parenthesis, to what is working and weaving in the earth's aura. At the end of the legend we see the forces of the Christ impulse which powerfully enthrall Olaf Astason in his subconscious mind. Such legends speak, as it were, of natural initiations which were still possible in ancient times of a direct perception of the spiritual world. At these times the aura of the earth has indeed a power that it does not have when it is flooded and irradiated by the physical power of the sun. And as Christ has, since the mystery of Golgotha, been united with the earth's aura, the power of the Christ impulse can exert a particular influence in the course of these days upon human souls, if they are receptive to it. Thus, before investigating anything historically, one might presuppose that also in the case of a figure such as the Maid of Orleans, the Christ impulse must have been working subconsciously in her soul for thirteen days, that she must have experienced an enlightenment through the Christ impulse similar to what Olaf Astason underwent in a state of sleep in the thirteen days and nights. The maid of Orleans must then have been in a condition resembling sleep in the thirteen days that lie between 25 December and 6 January, and on 6 January, after her soul had been entranced in a kind of sleep, the Christ impulse must have taken hold of her soul. What can be thus presupposed did indeed take place in a particular way, albeit during a special time, when a person is abiding in a state of sleep. Before a human being takes his first breath in earthly life, before he is delivered from his mother's body and receives the first ray of earthly physical light, he spends a period as a developing human being in a condition which can truly be termed a state of sleep. Just as in the evening one enters into a state of dreamlike sleep, so is one in such a condition in the body of one's mother. And those days when dreamlike sleep is most receptive to the unconscious influences of the spiritual world are the last days that a person spends in the body of the mother. Thus it could also well be that in the case of the Maid of Orleans these days would have been used to implant the Christ impulse into her being before she perceived the physical light of the sun with her physical eyes, 
and took her first breath outside her mother's body. This did indeed happen, for the maid of Orleans was born on 6th January. On the 6th of January, the whole village came together because something of an indeterminate nature could be discerned in its aura. This is an historical fact. The people did not know what had occurred. The maid of Orleans had been born. Much lies hidden behind such things, and only when humanity comes to be able to see this mysterious fact in its true light will there also be any understanding of what is actually going on beneath the surface of outward events. The divine forces seek the most manifold ways of making their approaches to the human soul. Of course, the karma of the Maid of Orleans had to be suited to something of this kind, but because her karma brought it about that she was born on 6th January, this provided historically for making it possible for the Christ impulse to work in a particular way upon this figure of history and gave Europe a completely new form. These are things which one can imagine if one studies the course of history with a certain understanding. These are the things with which a spiritual understanding will connect in future when this present fifth post-Atlantean cultural period has brought forth from human souls all their forces of cognition. Human souls will then experience the existence of the Christ impulse with an ever greater degree of consciousness. But they will only do so if humanity enters into a state where spiritual science is no longer regarded as a mere theory, but is felt to be something living and is inwardly experienced. Spiritual science will then be able to fulfill its true mission in the evolution of mankind. In a time such as ours, we must be especially conscious that it is necessary to bridge the abyss that in a materialistic age increasingly opens up between the human souls that live incarnated here in a physical body and those that have already passed through the gate of death. And one will increasingly come to regard the souls living between death and a new birth as just as much belonging to humanity as a whole as those who are in the physical life between birth and death. The awareness that we are all united in the earthly realm, also those who have gone before us into the supersensible regions, who are still active among those of us who are in physical bodies, albeit with different forces, must become ever stronger and more intense. But for this an understanding of the spiritually active forces is necessary. It is necessary that we learn to see the connections between earthly phenomena in that new light that spiritual science can give. Because spiritual science is intended to be something that moves our hearts while at the same time bringing our minds further on their path of knowledge, I want to speak to you of something that occurred in our circles in recent weeks. This is also a way of relating to and shedding light upon much that we have been preoccupied with recently in the wider context of our spiritual scientific stream of knowledge. I could, to be sure, also choose other instances, but these cases are linked so directly with our karma that I am again able to speak of them today. You can extend what I shall say to others both within and outside our spiritual scientific movement whose destiny and its relationship to their death bear a similarity to the cases of which I wish to speak. Last autumn we experienced a deeply moving event in the vicinity of our building in Dornach. Some dear friends had moved to Dornach with their children and had found somewhere to live near the building in order to look after the gardens. The eldest of the children a boy of seven, who was wide awake intellectually, but also had quite particular heart qualities, was indeed something of a son-child, S-U-N. One felt deeply drawn to the soul of this child, even if one saw him only fleetingly every now and then. When the father had to enlist in order to fulfill his duty as a German citizen, the seven-year-old boy was, I might say, wholeheartedly in the life situation of doing his best to replace his father by helping his mother in whatever way he could. He went to town by train and did the shopping completely on his own, despite being only seven. One evening he did not return. It was an evening when there was a lecture. 
Someone who knew us well came at about ten o'clock and said that the boy was missing. There seemed in the end a little doubt that the boy's absence had something to do with the accident of a furniture van, which had overturned near the building at a place where most probably no such van had ever been before, and had not done so since, and in all likelihood would not for quite some time to come. It had fallen down a small slope into a field in such a way that the drivers said that there could be no question of lifting the van that evening. They unharnessed the horses, because they were very concerned about them, and left the van where it was with the intention of lifting it the following day, thinking that it would take a whole day to restore the heavy van to an upright position. It was now ten o'clock in the evening. We had to connect the boy's disappearance with the accident involving this van. All possible implements were fetched, and everyone able to work helped, and in two hours the van had been lifted. Around midnight we found the dead boy beneath the van. Now if one considers the external facts, namely that shortly before this happened many different strands came together, so that the boy, who otherwise always took a somewhat different path, which would have led him to pass the van on its right side, on the occasion in question chose a path which led him past its left side at the moment when it overturned, that he had been detained by some well-wishers for roughly a quarter of an hour. He had had some supper in the so-called canteen with the result that he had come away later than he would have wished, that the incident took place in such a way that it was only a few minutes later that the boy was at the spot where the van toppled over, and no one noticed what happened to him. Some people who were not far away saw the van overturning, but they had not seen the boy. If one considers all of this, one recognizes this outward scenario as an excellent example of the kind of logical deception that one can so easily fall prey to. I have often spoken to you about this, and have shown that people can be subject to delusions in ordinary life, so that they become confused about cause and effect. I have given the example of seeing someone in the distance walking beside a river. One sees that he suddenly staggers and falls into the river. Shortly afterward his dead body is pulled out of the water. Now, one would have good outward reasons for supposing that the person concerned fell into the river and was drowned. And if one does not investigate further, one would adhere to this judgment. In this case, one only needs some external means to be convinced of this or a different point of view. One's initial judgment is strengthened by finding a stone at the place where the person fell into the river. But when the body is opened up, it is discovered that he had had a stroke, that he had fallen into the river as a result, and that he had died not because he had fallen into the river, but had done so because he was dead. Thus cause and effect are completely muddled up. For those with the requisite insight, this happens particularly in the realm of science. In our present case, where we are considering the death of this boy, we must say, the van conveying the furniture had been ordered by this boy's karma. His karma brought the van to this very spot. It is wrong to think that it was an accident. In this case, the boy was only to reach his seventh year in this incarnation. I might even say that the whole event was arranged accordingly. We must get used to viewing cause and effect altogether differently to the way that they are seen in ordinary life. When we look with the eye, E-Y-E, of a seer at the life of this soul, we will be deeply moved by a significant fact, which at the same time sheds light upon the spiritual mysteries of the world. Not long after the boy's death, the whole aura of the building in Dornach changed. In saying this, I am telling you something connected with my own experiences. If one has oneself to work for this building of the Anthroposophical Society, if one has to arrange what is to happen there, one knows what one owes to the helping forces that stream into one's soul from such an aura. Since the event that I have described, the unspent etheric body of the boy has actually been connected with the aura of the building in Dornach. The etheric body is what is laid aside by a person. The individuality, consisting of the ego and astral body, goes further on its way. That is something quite different. But when an etheric body of a child 
of so tender an age is laid aside. It has forces within it which could have sustained the physical body and physical life for decades. These forces have now passed through the portal of death, unused. They are laid aside after a few days. These forces are now active in the aura of the building. One cannot therefore say that in the case of this individuality it is the soul that is involved, but rather the unspent etheric body. Nothing is lost, even in the spiritual world. The physicist knows that nothing of physical forces is lost, that the forces are simply transformed. Similarly, in the spiritual world, we must look for transformed forces, unspent etheric forces that rise up into the spiritual world from people who have died young. We come close to these things when we observe them by means of actual instances. It is only for this reason that I am speaking to you today about them. A dear anthroposophical friend died some weeks ago in Zurich after a life which had brought her much testing and the karma of our movement brought it about that I had the task of speaking at the cremation. The time from her death until the cremation lasted from six o'clock in the Wednesday evening when her death occurred until the following Monday at 11 a.m., thus a longer time than normal. The separation of the individuality from the etheric body had already happened by the time of the cremation. The remarkable thing was that during the time when the soul had released itself from the etheric body, in the interval between the onset of death and the cremation, I was confronted with the necessity of speaking certain words, both before and after the address at the cremation. My own verbal faculties had very little to do with the way these words were formulated. But by identifying with the soul that had crossed the threshold of death, the necessity arose of characterizing this soul, but in such a way that the characterization was given as an inspiration, an illumination that came from the soul itself. It was as though the soul said, Formulate words, whereby that which characterizes my soul appears in the words that sound. But there was in my mind still a certain unconsciousness. The words did not have a conscious origin, but they derived from the being of the soul. I had to characterize it as it wanted to be reflected, not in an egotistic way, but as it appeared to itself when another soul contemplated it. And this other soul was obliged, by necessity, even in the way that particular words were formulated, to speak what follows at the beginning of what one might call a funeral oration. The following words had to be spoken as though addressing the soul that had passed through the gate of death. Quote, you appeared among us. The moving gentleness of your being spoke out of the quiet power of your eyes. An enlivening peace flowed in the waves with which your gaze conveyed the weaving of your inner being to all things and to other people. And this being was ensouled by your voice which eloquently, more through the manner of speaking than the words themselves, revealed what lay hidden within your beautiful soul. Yet wordlessly they fully revealed a devoted love to those attentive to it. This being who from a quiet noble beauty proclaimed a receptive awareness of world-soul creativity. Close quote. As said, these words had to be spoken at the beginning and at the end of the funeral. Now, this soul was in a certain sense sleeping during the whole event, during the funeral ceremony. Then followed the cremation. The remarkable thing was that the first moment of a lighting up of consciousness, later gradually to fade again, occurred for the soul at the moment when not the flame but the warmth took hold of the corpse. Thus one could say, this soul has now passed through the gate of death. It had put aside its etheric body, and now it could be seen how such a soul looks back. In this backward review, the whole funeral ceremony stood before this soul, that is, it perceived what had been said. And one could see the mystery of the working of time for the soul once it has passed through the gate of death. 
This could always have been seen in such a case. When one is here in the physical body and looks at something in the spatial realm and then goes away from it, this object does not go away but remains where it is, and one can continue to look round it. One sees that it is still there. This is not how it is with what we experience in a temporal sense in physical life. We have only a memory picture of events. But when one looks back at events after death, they continue to be there. One looks at the sequence of events as though through space. Thus, what had been spoken had continued to be there. And the soul looked back at it through the passage of time as at an object in space. This is what perceiving the phenomena of the Akashic Record is like. Then there, again, ensued a kind of sleep. But especially in this case, it was so clearly apparent that the materialistic soul's fear, that when the soul crosses the threshold of death, one's consciousness would be diminished, is without foundation. For when we sink into a kind of sleep after death, We do not have no or too little consciousness until we subsequently awake, but we have too much consciousness. When we have laid aside the etheric body and when the life's tableau has come to an end, we are initially so filled with consciousness. I have spoken about this in the cycle entitled The Inner Nature of Man and the Life Between Death and a New Birth, that the consciousness becomes dazzlingly bright and the human individual has first to orient himself, and he orients himself by looking back upon his own earthly life and his character in this earthly life. He has to orient himself through self-knowledge. It is there that the power of orientation can gain a foothold. And through this, what is in a certain sense an excess of consciousness is dampened down to the extent that he is able to come to terms with whatever he may have undergone in this last incarnation. It is therefore a dampening down of the excess consciousness that was present to the extent that the person can bear it. But this can occur in stages. And under the impression of the warmth, the heat, taking hold of the body, there arose a first lighting up of real consciousness in the soul of this personality with whom we were befriended that a soul that has passed through the gate of death does, however, endeavor to bring together what resides within it manifested itself to me, especially clearly through another case. I said that these things can be experienced with every death, but I am giving you characteristic examples from the most recent time. I was able to see this with quite particular clarity in another instance when a personality well known to us crossed the threshold after she had reached old age. During the last years that she spent on the earth, she had devoted herself in a quite unusual way with all her feelings and sensibilities to what one may call the impulses of spiritual science. She embraced all the different aspects of spiritual science more with her feelings than with her intellect. She united with her soul the kind of sensibility that results from a non-theoretical, true-to-life conception of spiritual science. Now, the situation with this personality was that shortly after her death, during the experience of the tableau of her life associated with her etheric body, there radiated from the soul with which one then identified that which this soul was now seeking to take hold of as its self, when it had laid aside its body. And shortly after death it occurred, when the soul was still united with the etheric body, I had to write down some words, which again I had not formulated through my human knowledge, but which are none other than an account of what the soul was working on within itself, in order, as it were, to bring together, as though in a kind of resume, what it had been able to receive from spiritual science in order to come to an inwardly full self-consciousness. This resounded in the soul with words that in accordance with an inspiration I also had to speak before and after the funeral address. You will immediately notice the great difference 
between the whole tone of these words from those that I previously cited in connection with the other personality. Quote, in world expanses I will bear my feeling heart, that warm it may become in the fire of the working of holy forces. In world thoughts I will to weave my own thinking, that clear it may become in the light of the eternal life in becoming. In soul foundations I will to immerse the sense of what has been, that strong it may become for true aims of human working. In God's peace I so aspire midst life's struggles and concerns, myself for the higher self-preparing, striving for peace in joyous work, sensing world-being in my own being, I would fulfill man's highest duty. May I live expectantly in the light of destiny's star that grants me the place in the realm of spirit. Self-characterization of the soul in a personal form. In the former case, you have the clear character that the soul that is observing must delineate the other soul out of a mutual mental association with it. Here, the observing soul had nothing to do other than put itself wholly in the place of the soul that was still seeking to understand itself in its being, enriched as it had been by spiritual science. With the forces of the astral body, in order to gain some degree of clarity as to how it had now to orient itself in the spiritual world. There are cases where it becomes so fully clear that when a person has gone through the portal of death, he is instructed to look back at his self in self-knowledge. Moreover, it has been clearly apparent that it is to a certain extent helpful for the dead person if someone still dwelling in a physical body helps him to formulate in words what is living and weaving within him. Of course, the times when the individual concerned perceives his weaknesses and his errors in the soul world are still to come. But we must state that to the extent that death is at times feared by those who still abide in the body, death takes a very different course when viewed in retrospect from the other side. Here in the physical body no one can look back with ordinary human forces to the hour of his birth. Indeed, there is no one who does not have clairvoyant powers for whom it is possible to look upon his entry into the world. Only later does the point of time arrive to which one is able to look back. The precise opposite is the case with that birth into the spiritual world which we call death. A person perceives this moment constantly in the life between death and a new birth. This moment alone is one of the most glorious, most wonderful and most beautiful things that one can see in the spiritual world. Viewed from the other side, death is always the direct proof that the spirit unremittingly celebrates its victory over physicality, something that one experiences through one's own being. Hence this aspiration to experience within the soul, after death, what one is able to be. It is therefore a help if a soul living in a body formulates in words that toward which the soul is aspiring, so that what it is appears, together with all the best that it has, before its own spiritual sight, after it has passed through the gate of death. One could precisely in this case see so rightly how such words that relate to the self of the soul in question come to one with an inner necessity when one has to speak at the funeral, and where one speaks not arbitrarily but obeys the divine voice that bids one to do what one has to do. This became apparent to me through the karmic course of recent times in yet another case. When one of our friends, in whom great hopes for the future of our movement were invested, died in his early youth. He died in his thirtieth year. 
he would have been thirty years old on 26 February and died shortly before. This friend, our dear Fritz Mitcher, was someone who with infinite self-sacrificial devotion infused out of his scholarly nature what he was able to attain in his scholarly pursuits with spiritual science, and hence indeed had something in his sights that is so necessary for our movement, embracing the full extent of our modern science in such a way as to imbue it with spiritual science and to express it in spiritual scientific terms so that one stands fully on the ground of scientific understanding. He was well prepared for this. Even if the course of karma is such that such souls pass prematurely through the gate of death, this has its significance in the course of the world as a whole. And just as in the other cases, because I had been urged through karma to speak at the funeral, it also happened then, that I had to speak words at the beginning and at the end of the funeral address, which had likewise to be spoken in the same way by putting oneself in the place of the being of the soul, so that the words were again not formulated arbitrarily, but were composed in living association with the soul that had crossed the threshold of death. This is what I was obliged to say. Quote, As a hope that gladdens us, so do we venture upon the field where spirit blossoms of the earth would, through the power of soul-being, manifest themselves to the questing spirit. Your longing had its deep affinity with a pure love of truth. The goal to which you tirelessly aspired throughout your life was creation from the spirit light. You cultivated your fine gifts to follow with sure step the radiant path of spirit knowledge, unswayed by outward opposition as a true servant of the truth. Your spirit organs you enhanced that they boldly and persistently thrust error from you to both sides of the path and create for you a realm for truth. To fashion yourself that it reveal the purity of light that the sun-power of the soul might radiate its strength within you was your concern and joy. Other cares, other joys, they barely touched your soul, for knowledge as the light that to existence meaning gives held for you life's truest worth. As a hope that gladdens us, so do you venture upon the field where spirit blossoms of the earth would, through the power of soul-being, manifest themselves to the questing spirit. A loss that deeply us aggrieves, so do vanish from the field where earthly seeds of spirit have matured for your senses' spheres in the womb of soul-being. Feel how we look lovingly up to the heights that called you now away for other creating Extend your strength from realms of spirit to the fields you've left behind. Hear the entreaty of our souls sent to you in confidence. We need here for earthly work strong power from spirit lands which to our dead friends we owe. As a hope that gladdens us, a loss that deeply us aggrieves, let us hope that from far and near, unforsaken for our life, you shine as starry soul in spirit realms. Already during the following night, I could experience that these words resounded from this soul, from out of the spirit realm. Quote, to fashion myself, that it reveal the purity of light, that the sun power of the soul might radiate its strength within me, was my concern and joy. Other cares, other joys, they barely touched my soul. For knowledge, as the light that to existence meaning gives, held for me life's truest worth. Close quote. I can assure you that when I had written these lines down, I had not even remotely thought that the two verses were as they were 
with every you changed into me and every your into my. I only became aware of this when the two verses sounded back to me from the other soul as an answer during the following night. Thus the verses remained exactly as they were, except that they were transposed from the second person to the first. If I mention this, it is because a heart understanding can arise within us of how the possibility will remain in the future of human evolution of speaking from soul to soul, when the mouth can no longer be used as an instrument. For just as we receive an answer through the mouth of the other soul for everyday life, so it was exemplified here, where the soul gave an answer even from the unconscious part of its being, as if it were saying, I have understood, for this is indeed how it was with me in life, now that I have laid the body aside. I can understand what I was striving toward in life. It is not only a question of receiving concepts, thoughts, and ideas about the spiritual worlds, but of living as a human being in a certain way in a particular life, in that, as people of the fifth post-Atlantean cultural period, we are approaching the sixth and seventh cultural periods. It is essential that the abyss separating the living from the so-called dead is bridged, that humanity increasingly becomes one, not only in so far as it is incarnated in the body, but also in so far as it has acquired those forms of existence that people experience between death and a new birth. Spiritual science has the task of not merely bringing this to mankind, but it is the first, I might say still stammering, attempt to do so for the life that the earth needs for the rest of this post-Atlantean evolution. For what can be given in spiritual science is indeed now still merely a tentative beginning to what future generations of humanity will experience through spiritual science. I wanted by means of this description, which seeks through the power of the heart to shed some light upon circumstances relating to life and death, to give some indication to you today of this focus of spiritual science upon life, so that you may develop an understanding different from one oriented around the head, namely an understanding of the heart, such as we seek in a living way through spiritual scientific study and is accordingly the task of the fifth post-Atlantean cultural period. It will be followed by the sixth and the seventh periods of culture. However, one will only rightly grasp what it is about Central European culture that is to be defended if one intimately feels its connection with what mankind has to achieve in the fifth cultural period. A start can then be made with what I referred to at the beginning of today's lecture, a broadening of the perspective of what lies hidden within our destiny-laden times. In the East, a kind of human life is being prepared, which will have a significance for the future. We need only to read about this in the cycle about titled The Mission of Folk Souls that I gave in Christiania. But the soul nature of the East European not to speak of the Far East, is fundamentally different from that of someone from Central Europe. And we must, through what spiritual science shall represent for us, come to have an open mind for such matters. It is a familiar story that the Varangians were summoned by the Russian Slavs and that they were told, we have a wonderful country, but we cannot create order in it. Come to us and bring us order establish some kind of government for us. This is a nice story about the origins of Russian history, but it is no more than a legend without any historical basis. Things did not happen like this. The truth is that these Varangians went out as conquerors and no one asked them to come. Nevertheless, what is thus related in the story has a greater significance than it would have if it corresponded with an historical truth for it has a truly prophetic significance. It represents something that has not happened but will happen in the future. What is to develop in the East will have to unfold in such a way that the capacities of the Eastern peoples are used for taking up what the culture of the West has created and allowing it to be elaborated further 
and fructified with what originates in the West. This will be the task of the Eastern peoples at some point in the future. The actual nature of the Russians of Eastern Europe can be briefly characterized by looking not at that mendacious group of individuals that now rules the Russian people, but at the people themselves. Then we must be quite clear that the Russian soul has an immense range of gifts, that it is, so to speak, gifted in all sorts of ways. But as it increasingly unfolds its mission in the evolution of the world and of humanity, it will become apparent that the phenomenon that it presents is one of gifts without the power to realize them. The range of gifts will grow increasingly and will become ever greater. But what, for example, distinguishes the Central European is that he has united his gifts with spiritual power, that he evokes that quality of endeavoring constantly to strive and lives intimately with his folk spirit that he wants to make a reality of what he seeks to understand. This is magnificently apparent in Fichte's philosophy, where the ego, in order to understand itself, seeks constantly to create itself. The greatness of this philosophy will one day be appreciated. And this so characteristic quality of Central Europe is present in a polar opposite form in Russia, in the east of Europe. These Russian souls are receptive to an extreme degree. They have the greatest gift for absorbing things. But if one attributes to them a productive capacity, one is under an illusion. They are called upon to develop gifts without the capacity to realize them. The very idea is difficult to grasp, because this is something that has not existed before in human evolution, but it must gradually take this course. And in the future it will indeed happen that the call will go forth from the east to the west. We have a wonderful country, but no order, for the disorder will become even greater. Come and create order. Central Europe is called upon to bring the productive capacity of the spirit to the east. What is happening at present is an unreasoning resistance to what must occur in the future. People try to stamp out what has to come about, only to say, come to us and create order. In the history of human evolution, what is most strongly resisted and rejected is that which in the end is most longed and striven for. The greatest misfortune that could arise is that Eastern Europe, that Russia, should be victorious in this process. It would be the greatest misfortune not for Central Europe but for Russia itself, the very greatest misfortune from an inward perspective. For this victory would have to be reversed. Its effects could not be allowed to remain. Thus we are facing a tragic moment in human evolution, that the East is defending itself against something for which it will long in future, and with all its forces. For it would be doomed to disaster if it does not allow itself to be fructified by the spiritual and intellectual life of what is for it the West, the peoples immediately adjacent to its Western boundary. And the West in this context must itself, in the further course of its cultural development, bring forth not merely idealism, but a living spiritual life. This living spiritual life will be like a spiritual sun, which will move from west to east in a direction opposite to the course of the outer sun. And in an outward sense, Russian people will increasingly see how little they are able to achieve through their own forces, and that they must set about finding their true place in the whole evolutionary process of mankind, and that they would be committing the greatest sin if they repudiated or misinterpreted the culture developed by the peoples on their western fringe. We have been able to experience what I might call some strange anticipatory indications of this. Did not something arise in Eastern Europe, which would have been an impossibility in the West, the so-called world conception of the barefooted? This is a kind of philosophy that has quickly become widespread, although a few years ago it did not exist. The barefooted. 
the world conception of those who make a lack of faith in man and in humanity into a philosophy. Since they cannot believe that man is actually anything other than a being who wanders about between birth and death amidst toil and fear, such that the words freedom, brotherhood, compassion, pity and love are empty clichés, and that the only wisdom consists in wandering through the world as a pilgrim with bare feet, who looks upon the whole degeneracy of Western European culture, to express it in barefoot terms, as a great illusion, and who considers the ragged clothes, the bare room, and the broad road to be the path that a person follows when he has attained the heights of barefootedness. And when a writer gives expression to this world conception of the barefooted in significant words spoken by one of his characters, it must make a strange impression on us, inasmuch as we try out of our Central European world conception always to discover what may kindle for mankind the light of the future. When a writer lets one of his characters express what is actually a kind of summation of the barefoot world conception and of the philosophy of those who adhere to it, what do we make of it? Quote, Indeed, what does man mean to you? Do you understand? He takes you by the scruff of the neck. He squashes you like a flea with his fingernail. Then you are to take pity on him. Well, now, you can then show him how foolish you are. In return for your pity, he will stretch you with seven tortures, wind your intestines round your hand, and tear every vein out of your body, an inch every hour. You fool! Pity? Pray to God that they may whip you without mercy, and there's an end to it. Pity? What nonsense! Close quote. And Gorky, of whom you will have heard much, says of such words, quote, cruel but true, close quote, in that he is not only recounting the world conception of a fictional personality, as the writer expresses it, but his own world conception, which is the way that he views the world. This is the world conception of a barefooter, a world conception that one can speak about as one might of any other current world conception. It is the world conception that has lost the possibility of transcending itself, of reaching beyond itself to something that sends light into life, that has to wait until it is fructified by this light and is then able to fulfill its mission, but is now rebelling against what it should be doing. Many are the slogans that one will have encountered in the world, but one of my most painful experiences has been of the empty words that were bandied about by the various parties in August 1914, at the War Assembly of the Russian Duma. Such a mountain of clichés surpasses everything in its empty verbiage. Such things as this are spoken only when all living creative power of the soul has been exhausted. The East is truly standing at the threshold of things to come, and it is developing a force that is opposed to what will one day be the source of its greatness we in Central Europe must say to ourselves, the East is waiting for the spiritual wisdom which must rise up from Central Europe. My dear friends, try to transform into feelings what I have sought to characterize in a few words, with, if I may say so, a heavy heart, so that this can shed light upon what we as spiritual scientists are able to encompass with an extended awareness, and into which we may penetrate in order to grasp the true present necessity of the spiritual scientific conception of the world. We shall then be imbued with thoughts, filled with understanding, which rise up from our souls into the cosmic expanses, thoughts which will then encounter the forces that will send their influence down from these worlds of spirit when peace will once more reign in the earthly domain. Today I have shown you how the influence is extended of those etheric bodies which as unspent etheric bodies are separated from souls and could have continued to work on behalf of physical life for years, even decades, here in the physical body. We cannot help thinking of the many unspent portions of etheric bodies 
rising up into the spiritual world, in addition to what those people passing on the battlefields through the portal of death bring into the spiritual world through their individuality. These etheric bodies will form a great quantity of spiritual forces, and these forces can work from the spiritual spheres on developing a spiritual conception that will gradually take hold of humanity. However, in order that these forces, deriving from the unspent etheric bodies, can send down their influence from the spiritual spheres, they must be met with thoughts that likewise ascend into the spiritual spheres from earthly human beings, thoughts that bring understanding for the secret influences of the spiritual world, imbued as they are with the forces of these unspent etheric bodies. This should be for us a source of encouragement that we fully explore the great truths of spiritual science. For these truths will stimulate within us thoughts which will then go on working in other people. And as the destiny-laden content of our present time takes its course, a time of peace will ensue when that which has come to pervade our souls from spiritual science will rise up and meet with the forces that have gathered and now stream down from the etheric bodies of those who, on the battlefields of the present, have passed through the gate of death. And then will occur something that I should like to summarize in a few words, which arises as an outcome of spiritual scientific research. If we rightly bring the fruits of spiritual science to bear upon what is taking place in our time, the result will be something that I should like to express in the following words. Quote, from the courage of the fighters, from the blood on fields of battle, from the grief of the bereaved, from the people's sacrifice, there will ripen fruit of spirit if souls will turn in consciousness toward the realm of spirit. Close quote. The end of Lecture 5.